sing this morning. Um, we do have one or two extroverts, but we just try and keep them to a minimum, because otherwise it gets a bit loud, so <laughs> not everyone is an introvert. <laughs> I know, we just are, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so um, we are doing uh, this series at the moment, hashtag do you know him, and uh, we've done, did yours have a title, was it like real or something? Yeah, uh, and, and then we did Restorer, and then we've done Teacher, and this morning we are on, do you know him, King? Do you know him, King? Jesus, the King. Do you know him? Not just do you know about him, or are you kind of somewhat acquainted with him, but do you really, truly know him as your King? is what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's go back a bit. Well, actually, like really a lot. Let's go back a few thousand years. Oh, that's interesting. What's that? Oh, I had problems with my PowerPoint this morning. Um, to the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East. Let's just think for a moment about what kingship looked like and felt like in the ancient world. Let me show you a couple of pictures. This is the Assyrian king. Uh, and this is a, a stone carving of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And of course, we're really familiar with the pharaohs of Egypt and what kingship looked like for them. They were really keen to make their presence felt in the nation. Everything about what they did was vast, enormous, imposing, strong. And we look at the images of who they were, whether they're built in stone or in gold, and you are given the message, this man is the king, and don't you mess with him. And if you've ever taken yourself to the British Museum, and Phil will be leading a guided tour in the next few months, <laughs> then you'll see how big everything is. You just walk into the Assyrian part of the museum, and everything towers over you. And that's the sort of concept of kingship that we're talking about. It's a concept of power and of authority, of wealth. So everything is covered with gold and jewels and is big and there are massive palaces because everyone need, needs to know that the king is wealthy. He is a warrior and preferably a conquering warrior, one who can say, we went there, we conquered, it's now ours. Someone to be feared, to be feared. This man had the control of your life and death in his hands. He was to be feared. And somewhere in there, and more explicitly in some cultures than others, was that he would be worshipped. And you'll remember the story in Daniel about how Nebuchadnezzar put his statue up and he said, I want everyone to bow down and worship me, and if they don't kill them... That's the kind of culture of kingship that we are talking about. The context and culture in which Israel found itself. But Israel were to be different because God was their king. So there were the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. And beyond them, the judges, people like Jephthah and Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And they ruled not very well, in fact, fairly poorly. 
And the people didn't respond and they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And the period of the judges was one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. And at the end of that time, the people rebelled. They were really good at that. They rebelled and they came to Samuel and they said, tell God, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be just like everybody else. We want a king that we can see. They didn't want just God because God's invisible and that's always difficult. Kind of still is, isn't it? But Samuel knew that this wasn't the right way. And God told Samuel to warn them. He said, a king will take your sons, your daughters, your servants, and your property. Everything's going to change for the worse when you complain God won't hear you. They didn't care because they wanted a king. They wanted a king. And everything that God had said worked out just as he said that it would. There was an increase in evil. There was oppression. There was heavy taxation. There was war. There was syncretistic religion as the kings conquered the lands and brought the gods and goddesses of the neighboring lands to be a part of the worship of Israel. Everything that God had said came true and the people began to drift away from God. Now, have you got your Bibles to hand or electronic devices? Because the good news is... That through it all, through it all, from the very beginning, there are echoes and whispers and even a few shouts of God's bigger purposes in helping the people remember that God is king and that sooner or later there would be another king, a prophetic voice of a coming king. And I want to go through these verses with you because... I know that you're like me and you won't look them up at home. There we go. So, starting with Genesis 49, right at the very beginning. Genesis 49, verses 10 to 12 says this. Now listen to this within your mind, a filter of a messianic prophecy of the coming king. All right? The scepter will not depart from Judah. Which tribe did Jesus come from? The clue was in the verse, all right? Which tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. Well done, right. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Now listen to this bit. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Do you see that? Do you see what it is? And then we go to Numbers chapter 24. And this is the prophecy of um, Balaam. He is the one that had the donkey. And part of that said this, the talking donkey that is. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Have that prophetic word of kingship as part of the prophecy to the nations. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm just going to summarize. This is God talking to David. He's saying to David, you're not going to build this temple, but your son will after you. You're going to build a temple. It's going to express your kingdom, and it's going to express the name of the Lord. At the end of this prophecy, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is one of those moments where what God is saying comes true for Solomon 
But there is also a further truth. Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. His throne did not endure forever. But there is a king in the line of David whose name is... You'll get the story eventually, won't you? In the line of Solomon also, whose throne does endure forever. Then there's a number of psalms, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but these psalms, bits of them, are picked up throughout the New Testament books, especially places like Hebrews, but also some of the Gospels. They are kingly psalms that are understood to be messianic, to talk about the coming king. So Psalm 2 talks about the nations mocking God the king, but God will establish his king on Zion. Psalm 45 talks about the wedding feast of the king, and there's echoes of that that we looked at in Revelation recently. Psalm 72 talks about the coronation of the king, and again, there's verses from that psalm that come back again into the New Testament, if you have a look there. And Psalm 110 talks about a priest in the line of Melchizedek, who was in Genesis, features again in Hebrews, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, a priest and king. So those are Psalms that pick up this thread of kingship. Isaiah 9, this will be one of the most familiar. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, That's about rulership, of course. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all titles that could have been given to a king in those times. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 49, again, really well-known chapters about the coming Messiah. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And again into Jeremiah, a similar time. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior, looking to a new kingdom. And then in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, again with Echoes of revelation here, really, or the the other way around. (laughs) In my vision at night, I looked. There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." And Micah chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. And finally, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We'll come back to that one in a moment. I just wanted to go through all those because 
we need to see how the fact that Jesus is king is there embedded in the whole story of God, in his purposes, in his plans, that there's this prophetic thread through the Old Testament that King Jesus will come. And we're not going to go through these, but the uh, metaphor of shepherd in the ancient Near East was often for the ruler. So when you read things about the shepherd in the Old Testament, often we're talking about the king there as well. So it's not just a sort of fluffy shepherd type, but actually the king, ruler, that also is a picture moving forward. So we're going to jump forward like loads. Are you ready? And we're going to land here. This so familiar image, so familiar story that wise men from the east, from around Iraq, that kind of area, who studied the stars and the comets, but who also studied the scriptures, all sorts of scriptures. They seemed to have understood something that many others failed to see. They came from far away. They traveled all the way to Jerusalem, and they were looking for a king. So where would you go when you're looking for a king? The palace. They arrive at the palace and they say to King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You know, it's only because we're so familiar with this story that we don't just get how startling it is that people have traveled. <laughs> I'm enthusiastic in there anyway. <laughs> people have traveled for a really long time to a palace because they are genuinely seeking a king. And when they're told there's no king here, and they continue to follow the star, they are so convinced that the scriptures speak about a king who is to come, that when I find a baby in a trough in a cattle stall, they worship him. It's just weird, isn't it? It's just weird. Why would you do that? If we weren't so familiar with it, we would see it for what it is, that these three wise men came and bowed down with their weird gifts. Please don't give gifts like that to Ellen Peter at some point or other in the next few days. <laughs> with their weird gifts, because they recognized that this baby was more than simply a baby. He was special. He was a king. He was worthy of their worship. You know what? I even think that King Herod got it. Because he didn't go, oh, don't be so ridiculous. Anyone had a baby around here? No, no one's had a baby. Go home. He went, this is, this is real enough for me to do something about this. And so he decided that all the baby boys under the age of two in that area were to be murdered. To be murdered. Because no king was going to compete with him. He also understood something of the seriousness that there might be another king. See, God's purposes were, were starting right from the very beginning or even before the very beginning. And at this particular key point in history... 
Herod, the puppet king, was acting as a puppet of a greater, more evil power, seeking to destroy the purposes of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But God is more than that, isn't he? At that time, there was a greater development of messianic fervor in the land. People were getting excited and frustrated. They were virtual prisoners under the control of Rome and under the control of his delegate, Herod the Great. There was too much Gentileness even in the Jewish worship. It was Herod's temple. It was tainted by the Gentiles. Roman taxation was a great burden upon them. And the mounting hatred against the Gentiles was growing and growing. There was a fervor in the land to find a deliverer, a Christ, an anointed one, someone who would set them free from the Romans. Of course, there was a lot of misconceptions as well about what this Messiah deliverer would look like. We've said this numerous times before. They were expecting a military leader, someone paralleling Judas Maccabees, for example, who'd come 150 years earlier. At that point, under Antiochus Epiphanes, 40,000 Jews had been murdered by the Greeks. Worse even than that, he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple for people to worship in the Jewish temple. And worse even than that, a greater atrocity as he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. And Judas Maccabees came in. And he led a Jewish revolt against the Greeks and he won. And he restored worship to the temple in 165 BC. They wanted to rescue a, a king, a deliverer like that. Other Jews were looking for a Messiah who was a priestly figure, who'd restore the purity of worship to the temple system. Others were looking for someone who would reinterpret the law and understand the Torah more accurately again and lead a reformation in the religious worship. The Qumran community were looking for two messiahs, a prophet and a priest. But this was a time where people were looking for someone. So who is this Jesus? The one the Magi recognized and worshipped, the one that Herod tried to eliminate. Who is he? You know, even in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes, they were getting all a bit enthusiastic and excited. They recognized someone who could do miracles and who taught with authority. Verse 15, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They saw something. They, Jesus knew they were going to make him the king, but not the king that God had promised. And then in Luke chapter 19, we have this very familiar story that we've looked at only a few weeks ago, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a warrior charger, not as a victor, not as a conquering king, but on a donkey. If you want to make an impression, you don't ride in on a donkey, do you? Echoing Zechariah chapter 9 there. But they saw him and they, they cheered and they hailed him, didn't they, as king? And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save, save us. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. They recognized him as the son of David, the one who was coming in the line of David. They saw something, even on that day. And yet, a few days later, we have this amazing interchange between Jesus and Pilate. Is it the same crowd? Are they that fickle? Have they changed their minds from Hosanna to crucify him? Or have those ones gone home and are skulking, and it's others that have come out and shouting? Or is it mixture? There's this amazing interchange between Pilate and Jesus, and I just, I just think this is so powerful. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, he's so wise, he's so clever, isn't he? He says, is that your own idea or did others tell you about me? Pilate, am I a Jew? It was your people, your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus, listen to him. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. That's what they want to do, isn't it? They want him to be king of this world. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate, you are a king then. Jesus answers, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. For this reason I came into the world to restore the kingdom, the rulership of God the true kingly presence of Christ in our world for this reason. That's it. The kingdom of God is the reason. His kingdom, his kingship, his rule, his rulership, he just sets the pace, doesn't he, for that. In every way, he heals the sick. He comforts the lonely. He touches the outcasts. He shows mercy and compassion. He confronts the powers of darkness. He restores the presence of God. He washes the feet of disciples and takes the least place. This is Jesus the King. This is what his kingdom looks like. His values are peace and joy and hope and justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion and love and his values create the culture of his kingdom. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really great place to exist. Where there is forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Where no one is hungry. Where the poor are fed. Where no one is an outcast and refugee. Is that not the kind of kingdom that it's worth being a part of? But of course we are, aren't we? Citizens of his kingdom. In his kingdom. Under his kingship. His rulership. 
I read this poem in the week. It says this. What kind of king would choose to wear a crown that bleeds and scars to win my heart? What kind of love tells me I'm the reason he can't stay inside the grave? You. Is it you? Standing here before my eyes, every part of my heart cries alive. Now from that moment, the risen Lord, the conqueror of sin and hell and death, the ascended king, seated at the right hand of God, reigning forever, he's our king. How do we respond to him? Hey? Well, that pretty much says it all, doesn't it? I surrender all. Because that, of course, that's really easy, isn't it? In fact, it's quite interesting listening to the three of you earlier because I thought, well, that's kind of the essence of it, really, <laughs> is the surrendering it all. Because it is so much about surrender, isn't it? It's about that open-handedness to him. It's the open-handedness where we trust our family, our friends, our ambitions, our dreams, our hopes, our career, our expectations, our challenges, everything. We just, we just, our money, our time, our gifts, our homes, our security. I feel some of you having palpitations at the moment. Yeah, we just put it there like that. And if you're like me, you do this. <laughs> and sometimes you do that, and sometimes you do this. Because actually living like that, well, it only works if you fully trust the goodness and love of Jesus for you. Because if you do, then why wouldn't you do this? Or are you better than him? And of course, it works itself out in obedience, doesn't it? When he says, go there, do this. We go, yes, of course. <laughs> Except that for most of us, the time between Jesus saying something and us saying yes, well, you know, it could be seconds optimistically or, or hours or days or years, can't it? Years of us wrestling with him. But he's our king, isn't he? And our king requires our obedience, whatever that looks like. And there's something about loyalty, isn't there? And something about allegiance that's so important. And I don't know, I don't know if I can express this picture in my head about what loyalty to Jesus looks like. I can only kind of think of what it doesn't look like, which is the disciples in the garden saying, oh, we're sorry, we got tired and we fell asleep. But it doesn't look like that when your master is going to his death and he asks you to pray with him and you go, I'm, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. And it doesn't look like Peter, who is no different than any of us, but who, when asked in the, in the courts, in the courtyard, do you know this man went, I don't know him. And it begs the question, how many times have I done that? 
How many times in a, in, a, um, in a situation, you know, like just a casual kind of situation, have I put my head down and I've hoped no one will notice that I am there and I haven't said, I know him. I'm with him. I'm with him. And of course, it's about service. Because that's who we're serving, the king, not the church, not the community, not even our friends, but Jesus. That's who we're serving. So if Jesus says to you, do something, then you frankly better do it. (laughs) And we are his representatives because we are the citizens of his kingdom. So when people see you and they know that you belong to Jesus and you are part of his kingdom... They will make a judgment about Jesus based on you. You know, there's absolutely bucket loads of mercy thrown in with that (laughs) sentence I've just said. But there is something of truth in that, isn't there? That when they see Brits abroad, they make a decision about what Britain is like. When they see citizens of the kingdom abroad, they'll make a decision about what the kingdom is like. So we are his representatives, his citizens, bearers of his kingdom, of his kingship. Jesus Christ, our king. Do you know him? Do you really know him? We've sung a lot of surrendery type songs, actually. Uh, Not the whole song, but bits. And every time I've thought, hmm, it's so easy to sing these things, isn't it? Maybe in our hearts we just need another choice to surrender who we are to the king, to place ourselves under his authority again, to express our allegiance again to him, to open our hands. And it's always like this. Let's not be unrealistic about it. To open our hands, say, everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. I belong to you. Jesus, my King.